0: verses one through five, the very beginning. Hear now God's word for you and for me. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, we enter uh, this space, this time of worship with a lot of emotion, a lot of thoughts, frustrations, disappointments, angers, for many different reasons. And we pray that your word by the power of your spirit would cut through that right now, that you would give us a word that we want, but also a word that we need your word, even Jesus the Christ. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, all of this would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I started planning out the sermons I would preach in the month of January, looking at the lectionary texts and uh, tracing some ideas about where the Spirit might lead us in the preaching moment. Uh, You may know this already, but each and every year, the Sunday that follows Epiphany uh, is the Sunday that the church reflects on Jesus' baptism. I love that we had the opportunity to baptize Sweet Avery today on this special day when we recount and retell the story of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And I want to tell you that story again as it comes from the gospel writer Mark in the first chapter, verses 4 through 11. Listen to God's word to you and to me. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven that said, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in preparation for today, those few weeks ago, as I was looking at this text that comes to us from the lectionary, I was reminded that, that in our tradition, the sacrament of baptism holds a deep, deep reservoir of theological meaning. And part of that meaning is connected to the notion that Christians die and come alive with and in Jesus Christ the sacrament of baptism reminds us that we die to our old ways, that we die to the ways of the world, that we, that we die to old habits, and we're born again. To use the language from the third chapter of the Gospel of John, that we are born again in the likeness of Jesus himself, that we're born into new life. The Apostle Paul says as much in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans when he writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life, the sacrament of baptism embodies this verse. And friends, this is the fundamental pattern of Christianity. Dying and rising in and with Jesus Christ. Dying and rising in and with him. And we are called for our lives on this earth to embody that pattern. To follow that way. That we we die to sin. And we're raised to new life, which is a life whose contours are shaped and conditioned and ordered by who we know Jesus Christ to be as he is proved in the New Testament and as he has been attested to in the proclamation of the church throughout the ages and even right up to this very moment. Again, to borrow some words from the Apostle Paul, this time from Galatians, the fifth chapter, we die to sin, which means we die to fornication, we die to impurity, we die to licentiousness, we die to idolatry, we die to sorcery, we die to enmities, we die to strife, we die to jealousy, we die to anger, we die to quarrels, dissensions, Factions, envy, drunkenness, and carousing. We die to those things. And we're raised by the power of the Spirit to new life, a life that bears authentic and true fruit, the fruit of love and joy, a new life of peace and and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self control. In his book, Bringing Up Children in the Christian Faith, Episcopal priest John Westerhoff describes a baptism in a tiny village church in Latin America that when measured against his own experiences of baptism in the Episcopal church, their practice seemed very, very different and somewhat unorthodox. When it came to baptize within this small congregation, the whole church that would be gathered began to sing, would begin to sing, rather, a a funeral dirge. They they would sing a, a, a dirge, a solemn and somber song. It wasn't Jesus loves me. It wasn't child of blessing, child of promise. The song that we sing following baptisms, it was actually a song of lament, a song that you sing when somebody dies. And that's the song that they would sing as the family would come to the baptismal font or to the front at least. Because as it turns out, they would actually bring their their own font. And Westerhoff noted that that the father was carrying a coffin in this processional. A child-sized coffin made of wood built with his own hands. The mother behind him carried a bucket of water that she had drawn from the family well. And the priest then carried their child wrapped only in a blanket. And when they came to the chancel... The father put down the coffin, and the mother filled it with water. The priest would then cover the baby with oil and would recount and call to mind the women preparing the body of Jesus for burial after his crucifixion. And then the priest fully submerged and immersed the child, fully under the water, no sprinkling like little Avery fully under the water. And he said the most peculiar words. He said, I kill you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone in the congregation shouted amen. And then just like Rafiki lifted Simba over his head at Pride Rock for the Lion King, the priest raised the baby out of the water and declared, and I resurrect you that you might love and serve the Lord. And with that, the congregation broke out in new singing, new song, joy-filled Easter hymns. Now, I'm quite confident that the session would ask me to stop doing baptisms if I started doing them this way. But there is a powerful theological point to be proven here. The Christian life is a life that bids us to come and die each and every day. And the act of baptism itself symbolizes this death. You know, the Greek word for baptism, baptizo, means to immerse or submerge. Our baptisms today are, are somewhat tame compared to the literal meaning of this word. When we are submerged and the, and the waters come over our body and, and they cover Our face and they rob us of oxygen, things get dark and death feels imminent. And that's part of the potent and unsettling symbolism of the sacrament. The waters of baptism literally drown the old self and the old way of living and the way of Christ is meant to be born in us. I love what Barbara Brown Taylor says when she wrote these words, new life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it always, she says, starts in the dark. And baptism reminds us of that as well, in the darkness of the deep, in the darkness of the waters. That's where new life begins. Speaking of darkness, these are uh, dark times that we are living in, uh, very dark times. And one of the fundamental truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is evidence in the creation story that Rebecca read for us. It's evidence in the sacrament of baptism itself that we were witness to Is that God is not distant from the darkness? Remember what it says in Genesis 1 when the darkness covered the face of the deep, the deep meaning the waters. When when darkness covered the face of the, the waters, what did God do? God created, God was present in the darkness, hovering over the deep. And God created, and God was present, and God did something new in the midst of chaos. God did something new in the midst of darkness within the formless void. When we are immersed, friends, when we are submerged under the water, we do not fret because we know what God is capable of in the depths, in the darkness. We know that God will do something new. We know God can create life and bring light and bring order within the darkness and out of the darkness. Baptism reminds us over and over and over again that God does good and beautiful work in the chaos. It's true in our lives, in the chaos and the darkness of our lives, our personal lives, God can do something new. And in the life of of the world, God can do something new. And, I, and so I want every Christian, I want every Christian within the sound of my voice who takes their baptism seriously, who takes God seriously, to not forget that in these days, God is present and working in the midst of darkness. That God is present and working in the midst of darkness of chaos I don't have to tell you that Wednesday was a, a very hard day a difficult day for our nation as i watched the violent breach of our nation's capital as people were scaling walls and breaking through police lines and barricades my mind went back to the times that i have stood right there on those capital steps have been inside that Capitol building. Perhaps you had thought about the times you were there as well. I remember one time in college meeting with one of my senators at the time. It was Republican Rick Santorum who, who had an intimate conversation with about a dozen, dozen of us college students talking about how the marketplace can be a powerful tool to lift people up out of poverty. And I remember the words that he used and I remember the passion that he had. And, and I still resonate with that way of, of thinking about the marketplace. In fact, it's, it's part of what motivated me and my part in the Epiphany Project here at First Pres. And so I remember that. I remember that meaning. I remember that conversation in his office. I also remember the day that I met democrat john lewis it was may 7th 2014 i remember the exact day because it was the day that the pastor nominating committee of the first presbyterian church of atlanta called me to offer me and katie ministry here at first presbyterian church i was literally at the Capitol when i got the phone call i didn't answer it i let it go to voicemail I was with my friend and congressman, Republican Charlie Dent. He was a friend of Democrat John Lewis. They were actually good friends, and he introduced us. And I will always remember our brief conversation, that conversation I had on the Capitol steps with John Lewis, and how he spoke of the power of the church to be light for justice and for reconciliation. Besides those memories, My mind also became fixed on a particular passage of Scripture. It was a text I had not planned on referencing today. It's not part of the lectionary. In fact, I didn't make the decision to reflect on it until about 7.30 this morning. Because it's actually a time when Jesus Jesus engaged marauders from his own family of faith had an interaction with them in a holy and a sacred place. The story's from Mark 11. And Jesus had just entered Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna. You know that story. story that we reflect on on Palm Sunday, the crowd shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What we know about that story is that once Jesus enters in, he gets off the, the animal and he... And he goes right to the temple. Now remember that the temple was the physical centerpiece of the Jewish faith. it's, It's where God actually lived. It's where the law and the prophets were read and taught. It's where true and authentic worship ought to take place. And here's what happened that day with Jesus at the temple. Then they came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, says Mark, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now this phrase, this interesting phrase, den of robbers, it comes from Jeremiah, and it's really exceptionally nuanced in the Greek. It's actually not the Greek word to steal or to describe a theft. That would be the Greek word kleptis, That's literally to steal something. And that's where we get the English word kleptomaniac. That's not the word that shows up in this text. Instead, the word for robber here is lestes. And lestes is a very particular word. It has a particular meaning. It literally means bandits or marauders or insurrectionists. You see, what was happening in the temple was that there were groups and factions from within the temple, right? Factions within the temple who were preparing and plotting to take up arms against those who were different ethnically or religiously from them or had different views about orthodoxy, or different views about what their relationship with Rome ought to look like. Various factions, a den of robbers, a a den of lay And Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we have to ask, what is it that, that they are robbing? What is it that they're doing here? They're they're, they're actually robbing God by taking money from the people, temple taxes and tithes and offerings, and they're using it to fund their own siloed agendas. They're also robbing the people of the good news of the gospel that demonstrates the power of God to actually turn human hearts to turn enemies into friends, to reconcile all of creation to God's very self and to reconcile us to one another, not for the sake of sameness, but for the sake of unity in the mission of God to love and bless the world. Friends, this robbery, so to speak, has no place in the Christian church It has no place in the family of faith, violence, and division, and demonization, and racism, whether motivated by left-leaning ideologies or right-leaning ideologies or anything in between. These things should be drowned in the waters of baptism. They should be killed. We should let these ways be killed in us. It's not the way of the gospel. Not this way. The way of the gospel is when sinners like me and sinners like you repent of such things that we go back to the source, Jesus himself, and learn what it means to be in community with one another and what it means to be a family of faith. We turn away from sin. We turn toward God. And we actually turn toward one another. Because we believe, and I'm trying not to be cynical about this, we believe that we're actually the body of Christ on earth. (laughs) That we turn toward each other. Because we need each other to be more of the body that God's called us to be. On Wednesday... On Wednesday, I I, I called for prayer. Actually, on Thursday, I called for prayer through a congregation-wide email. And seven hours later, we had close to 150 of our members and friends online for a Zoom-styled prayer meeting. Our pastors prayed prayers of peace. They prayed, prayed prayers of confession and atonement and healing and justice and reconciliation. And then we opened up the the chat feature in the Zoom for people to write their own prayers. And we didn't have to wait long for that chat to be populated with prayer after prayer after prayer from the body of Christ. And as I looked on the screen and I saw the names and the faces of our family of faith, I was encouraged for the first time over that two day period people who are black and people who are white, native Atlantans and transplants, lifelong members and new members, people who vote Republican and people who vote Democrat. We had children and youth and parents and grandparents, young and old alike, leaning into the identity that supersedes every other identity. That is that we are baptized Christians. We're baptized. Leaning into each other, choosing each other, knowing that God has chosen us in our own baptism and that we really do need each other to humbly follow Jesus Christ. Friends, this is who we are. We are baptized Christians, people who die to the way of sin, and people who are raised in the way of Jesus Christ, the word that is above every word, the word that we are called to obey in life and in death. May we rise in him. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, I pray it. Amen. New life always starts in the dark. Starts in the darkness at the dawn of time. It starts in the depths of the waters of baptism where we die to our old selves and are born anew. It can begin in darkness that we sense internally and externally. That God is present, that God is creative, and that God is bringing new life. And God calls us as baptized Christians to be a part of that creation, bearers of that light, demonstrators of new life rooted in the gospel of Jesus. May we be his followers and may his peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day ahead. Amen, and be at peace.